Welcome into another episode of Sci Really. I'm your host, Blythe Burnley. Been on this show, we talk about B2B marketing, the attention economy, and how it all fits into the world of logistics. And today is a very special Hall of Fame edition show. Uh, we are talking a lot of different topics. And the first one we are going to talk about is how to market your market your company like a sports team. Then we're going to talk to Chelsea Cavanaugh. She is the Senior Director of Communications over at Jacksport. She's breaking down how exactly a city gets a port and then how the community benefits after getting that port. And then in the final topic, we are going to talk about the logistics of getting an NFL team. And But first, before we dive into any of those topics, let's go ahead and pay our respects to the Munair Group. They are a leading recruiting firm in the logistics and technology fields. Whether you're looking for a new job in the industry or you're looking to hire top-tier talent, the Munair Group has a network strength to meet your needs. Learn more at moonairgroup.com. Also, another, if you're noticing a theme in today's show, it's very uh, Jacksonville heavy because that's where I was born and raised. So Moonair Group is also a North Florida-based business and we're going to be talking a lot about Jacksonville today. So um, whether you're a fan or not of the city of Jacksonville, hopefully you'll be able to come Away with some cool little, you know, nuggets to to use it, you know, a future trivia night or just a future, you know, uh, I, just whatever in conversation. But that first topic that I want to jump into is how to market your team, market your company like a sports team, because I think for a lot of people, they think of B two B marketing as sort of boring. That uh, there's there's nothing really going on. That is just you know case studies and white papers, especially in logistics, especially in the B two B world. But with my background in freight and sports, I wanted to spend just a few minutes talking about some ideas that I've seen, some campaigns being run in the sports arena that I believe that a lot of businesses can use to their advantage, especially in the logistics field to help your marketing stand out from the rest that are just simply focusing on like more of the boring parts of the industry. So let's talk about how to spice it up with tip number one, and that is to create an internal media team. So to give some perspective, years ago, especially over the course of just how sports has been covered and the evolution of how sports has been covered, there's always been a deep relationship building between journalists and some of the beat reporters and within the athletes and the team themselves. That relationship building was prioritized. But with the invention of social media, that has kind of just slowly started to disappear as far as the relationship building aspect is concerned. Nowadays, athletes can go straight to social media. They don't have to worry about using the team as their liaison to get their message out. They also don't have to worry about going directly to reporters and, be, and, and journalists in order to get their message out there, to get more media awareness. So that, you know, maybe one day if they're getting a sponsorship deal or they are moving to another market, that they would still have a lot of the same sponsorship deals and a lot of the same deals that they have away from the football field or away from, you know, wherever their field of choice is, that they would still have those opportunities. So they would use the journalists and the broad and the beat reporters in order to establish that marketing, that awareness. Now they can go straight to social media and they can control all of it. And so the lesson I think for a, a lot of different companies out there is to do the same thing is to when you're creating video and podcast content, 
it gives you control over the message. Because for a lot of times, a lot of players want to speak to a lot of different media and and have more of those casual conversations. But a lot of times the players will get in trouble by having these conversations. So that's why the team likes to almost like protect the player from themselves, but also to protect the team from anything that the player might get out there and say that wouldn't necessarily be sanctioned by the actual team media. So no longer do you have to pitch to a reporter and hope that they feature you in a story. You can actually take ownership of your own media, of your own content, and you can do it yourself and still tag them anyway. So if you own the content, you own the distribution, and then you can reap the rewards from that. So that's tip number one. Tip number two is kind of related because the tip number two is to have a war room ready for big events. And when I say a war room ready, think about like the bigger events, like the Super Bowl, for example, a lot of teams and a lot of brands that are advertising in the Super Bowl, they will have what's called their media war room, where it will literally be just people sitting around the desk. And you'll have one person that's recording the action, you'll have one person that has, you know, scheduled, you know, posts, to, to go out on social media. You have another person that may be recording the action. You have another person that may be writing down the action of what's going on and live blogging it. These are a lot of the different components that make up a, a war room setting for a lot of these brands for bigger events like the Super Bowl. But you can actually take that take that tip and take that strategy and use it for things like conferences and events. Now, when you go to conferences, don't just, you know, write or maybe, maybe what I see typically is people will take a few thoughts, they'll write them down in a notebook, and then they'll share it with their team whenever they get back into the office. But if you're going to a conference, you're going to a virtual event, you're going to maybe a, a, a local networking event, then maybe what you can do is you can take that extra initiative and then you can take the, the initiative to, to take that content and then create a video from it and then create that video from it. Then that creates more long form content. So you, you have that original long form content and then that will also give you the ability to move that conversation into social media clips, into email distribution, and just getting that consistent messaging out. So not only are you writing down all of the insight that you're learning from each of these different events, but then you are taking that information and you're sharing it with your audience. And so you become the authority and you become the, the person that is being that liaison for that information. So when you go to conferences, have your own war room plan ready. Not only are you going to be taking notes, but maybe you can set up a situation where you take this information and you email it back to your team and they're crafting up a response, they're crafting up a blog post and they're creating the distribution for the content that you've already written down, that you've already you know, gathered from these industry experts. And then maybe you can have a sort of a roundtable discussion for whenever you get back and you can film that reaction. Film it with your cell phone. Mic everybody up with a $20 microphone. And then you can have that long-form content that feeds into social media and then eventually feeds into your email distribution and just your overall marketing and brand awareness. So borrow from the other industries that are using, you know, a war room style media department or yeah, they're really creating like a media war room. So you can use that philosophy and then you can apply it to your own business for those bigger events and for some of those different just in big conferences that you're going to, where those ideas just aren't lost and they're not, you know, just left to the winds. And, you know, you discover them in a notebook years later when they, you could be sharing them and you could be using them to your advantage more so than just sharing it with the executive leaders whenever you get back in town. Now, the tip number three that I want to give is to think 
outside the box. Sports and entertainment are where the most creative ideas are happening, which is why I was excited to really cover this topic because you can use them as inspiration. You don't have to use your competitors or other colleagues within the industry as inspiration. You can go to other folks and you can, or other industries, and you can get your inspiration from there. And we often talk about the importance of, on this show, especially when it comes to marketing, we talk about the importance of customer research. And there was one instance where the Savannah Bananas, yes, it's a, it's a minor league baseball team out of Savannah, Georgia, but they're a, they watched what their customers did not what they said. Let's play that clip. A lot of people believe in surveying their customers. I struggle with it. Henry Ford never surveyed his people and said, what do you want? Because the joke is they would have said faster horses. Steve Jobs was completely against surveying. Same thing with Amazon. So I'm more intrigued about watching our fans and then thinking about what's a better experience. So we take pictures of our grandstand every 30 minutes. We keep track of when fans leave, not necessarily when they come in, but when they leave. And so by watching this for many years, even with every game sold out and a wait list in the thousands, fans were still leaving games early because it was too long. And so we realized that nine o'clock was that right time in a two hour game. And so we started testing it and we did an experiment in 2018 with colleges. We played a nine inning game in 99 minutes, which was outstanding. We had a lot of failures along the way, a lot of parts of the rules that just didn't make sense and we had to get better at. But now 98% of our fans stay to the end of the game. Incredible story, right? They actually watch and they photograph what their fans are doing so they can take that that market research instead of just surveying fans, which I still think that you should survey fans in a, a one-to-one environment and still have those conversations, especially you know in, in the B2B world where if a prospect reaches out to you and wants to do business with you, asking them, how did you hear about us? Or you know different solutions or what they think about different products that you might be bringing to market. I still think that that's incredibly valuable and incredibly insightful, but they took it one step further and they surveyed their fans within the actual audience, which I think is brilliant because if you've seen some of those uh, some of those uniforms and, and are very recognizable because they're videos and their routines to get people to stay until the end of the game, that has gone viral. And now other teams are thinking about using those same initiatives. And I think that there's a lot of parallels between what the Savannah Bananas are doing and really where you know a, a lot of different uh, industries and a lot of different companies can take inspiration from. Now, for the last tip that I want to give you is to make your customers feel special. The first instance that I want to give is season ticket holders in in sports. They are largely regarded as your holy grail of customers. And so when you you have that holy grail of just dedicated fans, you want to make sure that you are keeping them happy. And the ways that a lot of different sports teams do this is by handling with their or coupling it with their season ticket packages. And so those season ticket packages usually arrive in the mail. They're typically arriving around this time of the year. If the team hasn't gone fully digital, which I'm not the biggest fan of teams going fully digital for all of their ticketing, I understand why they're doing it. I'm just not a fan. I love keeping my ticket stubs. I've kept them for years. And a digital ticket just isn't the same. But when you still... In the absence of getting the excitement of getting your envelope every year with your season tickets in it, some of these other teams have come up with a creative way to still create that excitement. And the first one I want to show you is this Bill's example. Let's play that video. Or it's actually not a video. It's actually a clip. So what you're looking at is a lunch pail. This is a lunch pail that's Buffalo Bill's branded. Inside each one of these actually came with a t-shirt and a couple of other Buffalo Bill goodies. So this was handed out to all of the different uh, season ticket holders that arrived to a special season ticket holder only event. So creating those special events specifically for people who are already your customers. A lot of times what happens is that 
all the new customers get the cool deals and, and get the better deals than what the longtime customers get. And that's kind of unfair. And so for the bills to take that extra step in order to, you know, give, give bills fans, you know, sort of a, 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 something that they can carry around with them. And then be able to have other people be like, where'd you get that from? I want something like that. I, when I saw this photo, I wish that the Jaguars did the same thing for me. I'm a season ticket holder for more than 20 years. And I've never gotten something cool like that. So that instantly made me jealous. And speaking of making me jealous, there's another um, video that I want to play that's actually from the Raiders. And I think it's from this year, what the season ticket holders get. And if you're you're listening to this, it, what it is, is essentially a, a Raiders branded box. And you open it up and it has the dates on each of the tickets. And so they actually still give them printed tickets. And so the box is just, it's beautiful. It's beautifully lit. It shows, you know, I think it shows all of their different years that they've won the Super Bowl, if I'm looking at this correctly. And then you get the package of the actual tickets themselves. So the box itself is probably a collectible. It's probably something that you can keep for a very long time, but it's also the presentation value of it that you're not just sending customers, you know, a packet envelope of all of the different tickets, but you're creating something special that they will keep with them probably for a very long period of time. Now, there's another example of this in the corporate world, which is corporate boxing or the, the, the corporate box gifts. And let's go ahead and show the different, the box idea number one and number two that's on the screen right now. And these are from Shopbox Fox. So they specialize in making custom boxes and also making the boxes that are ready to buy right now. Because a lot of the boxes that you're seeing, they're kind of like a drink kit or um, a company branded, uh, you know, marketing messages and things like that. Basically, it's an entire marketing branded gift box, but you're sending it out to either, you know, special customers and, um, you know, maybe other, you know, VIP employees that are that are within the company. So you're using these custom gift boxes in order to send out to the masses. Now, they also have another option where you can just buy immediately boxes that are already kind of pre-made. So it kind of helps out the marketing managers out there that maybe you didn't have enough time to order the big custom branded boxes, but you can still go out and you can still get the special boxes because those are especially clutch when it comes to virtual events. If a virtual event that I sign up for sends me a box, I am much more likely to participate in that virtual event because there's a community built around it. Six River Systems is a great example of this, that they will, if you register for one of their conferences, they will mail you a box full of goodies. And a lot of times in that box, it's a drink making kit. So everybody who is at the virtual conference is then taking part in, say, a wine sipping um, or, or a drink sipping or a drink making. They have a bartender that they've hired, you know, to get the presentation on how to make a proper, you know, old fashioned or something like that. Those are really creative ways to bring together a virtual community into the space that you're, you're trying to promote that event. So another great idea. So that was makes me, it also makes me much more likely to tune into the event if we're being honest. So all of those are really good tips in order to sort of think outside of the box. I think that we especially in logistics, especially in B2B marketing, we tend to not think outside the box. So I would suggest to all of the marketers out there, if you're feeling like your marketing is a little stale, if you're feeling like a lot of your pitches are, you know, just boring to you, then they're probably going to be boring to your audience as well. So look to these other industries in order to get some inspiration. And hopefully, you know, a lot of these ideas helped you as well. All right. It looks like we have Chelsea Cavanaugh ready to go. She's the Senior Director of Communications over at Jacksport. So let's go ahead and bring Chelsea into the show. Hey, Blythe. Good afternoon. Thanks for having me. 
Absolutely. Now, now for folks who who may not be familiar with you, with Jacksport, can you kind of give us a little bit of insight onto how you joined the company and how you started working in in logistics? Well, I joined uh, Jacksport in 2014 in the communications department. um, And I have a a background in television news. So prior to that, um, I worked at Action News, which is a local CBS and Fox affiliate here in Jacksonville. So kind of telling the stories um, of the community from the news perspective and telling the stories of, you know, the different neighborhoods here in Jacksonville. And so that kind of made a natural transition uh, to my role here at Jacksport, where I work to tell the story of our city's seaport. You know, there are a lot of times we hear people say, well, I don't know a lot about the port because, you know, most operations are done kind of behind secure gates for, for security reasons. Um, but there are a lot of really exciting stories to tell about the people who help us keep cargo moving. So I I'm love that because... That. It, well, speaking of Jacksport, because it's something that, you know, I'm a, a lifelong Jacksonville resident. It's, it's a, you know, driving by the port on the way to the airport is something that, you know, I've done all my life, but I've never really known the, the history of the port. How does a city get a port? How, what decision-making process goes into that? Well, it's really interesting that, you know, Jacksonville, we, we're known for a lot of things, but we really do have a rich maritime history. Jacksonville is, is really the nation's oldest port. Uh, trade activity in our region dates back to the 1500s. Uh, but more recently, we were founded in 1963. And so, you know, there was, of course, politics is involved in a lot of things, um, but that was how we were founded is through a special act by the Florida legislature. Um, but before 1963, the city operated the seaport, kind of how they operate other things like parks and other city services. But I think what happened was they realized that you know, to operate a port and to really do it right and take advantage of all the benefits that come with having a port, uh, you need to have its own agency. An agency needs to take care of all the things. You know, there's a lot of cranes and and a lot of work that goes into the equipment and the facilities that it takes to keep maritime trade running. And so that was um, how we started in 1963 with that special act from the legislature. A few years after that, they actually added the airport. um, And so we were Jacksonville Port Authority, known as the Seaport and the Airport. Uh, since then, in the early 2000s, uh, we split from the airport, and now we're just the Seaport because you know the businesses are very different. So what, that that's super interesting that the airport was tied to it t- as well. Because my next question was going to be, well, you know, after the port, I guess, is you know a- officially comes to fruition in the 60s. What happens after that? Are you recruiting other ship lines to come to town? Are you building warehouses? What does that process, I guess, that grand, you know, eagle eye view look like after the port officially arrives? Well, so there's two really types of seaports. There's operating ports and there's landlord ports. So operating ports are the ones who actually move the cargo. They lift the containers off of the off of the ships and move them around. We're the other kind of port, which is um, a landlord port. So we actually lease the space that is used by private businesses who actually conduct the movement of cargo. So people sometimes think, think it's interesting. You know, we I work at a port, but we actually don't own any shipping containers. Uh, none of our employees don't actually move any of the cargo. The people who are moving the cargo, they're either the labor unions who have been hired by the private businesses or the private businesses themselves who move the cargo. So we're kind of, I compare it to, um, you know, like a shopping mall and we rent out the space and we maintain it. Um, but the private business businesses actually run uh, their individual operations. Um, but I know that you talk a lot about marketing on this show, and that's really our role. In addition to maintaining the facilities, we really work to market Jacksonville as a leader in global trade. And we really work to promote the advantages that we have. You know, Jacksonville has fast access to 98 million U.S. consumers 
within one day's drive. We have outstanding labor, rail connections. Um, so, so we just work to kind of really spread that message to the industry. And I mean, clearly that messaging is working because we've all heard the horror stories, you know, about the port congestion on the West Coast and how it just, it seemingly is never ending. How has that port congestion affected, because I, I, I understand it's positively infected all of the ports on the East Coast, including Jacksport. Yeah, you know, as you mentioned, we kind of maintain um, uncongested operations uh, throughout the supply chain disruption, which really is a testament to all of the men and women that are out on the docks every day, keeping cargo moving. Um, but, you know, it's, it's interesting when we look at the West Coast and kind of the things that are happening out there. Our goal really is it's not to attract cargo that is bound for California or Arizona. We are looking for cargo that is Southeast U.S. bound cargo that really makes sense to come through Jacksonville and take advantage of all of our efficiencies. You know, we have added uh, three container services in the last 18 months. Uh, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis was here uh, twice in the last year, uh, really helping us spread that message that Florida ports are open for business. And we offer a number of efficiencies. We don't have the labor disruption. And, you know, we can keep the cargo moving. We have here in Jacksonville open berth availability seven days a week. And as you said, the customers are really responding to that. And we are seeing a very high level of interest here in Jacksonville. That's awesome because I, I wouldn't have even thought like uh, you, you want to prioritize the freight that's actually bound for the Southeast anyway. So why not just go ahead and optimize it and bring those ships over here to begin with instead of waiting out, you know, for for who knows how long. Now, an another area of assumption for me, which I really feel like I feel like a fool kind of assuming this, but I just assumed that the cruise terminal of the port was just a separate entity altogether. And it kind of sounds like it's one of those, I guess, to, to use a phrase that you just use, a mall tenant of, of Jacksport. How does the, the three different terminals, because from what I understand, you, you said it owns, maintains, and markets three cargo terminals, two intermodal rail terminals, and one passenger cruise terminal along the St. John's River. And so you have three main terminals handle every type of general and project cargo. Are all of those operations sort of working together, like sort of like a sister company? How does that relationship sort of facilitate and grow? Are, are they growing together or are they growing independently, but also kind of together? Absolutely. Yes, they're definitely growing together. I kind of look at it as pieces of the logistics puzzle. So we have three cargo terminals that are very different and they offer different capabilities. You know, there's kind of a saying in, in the maritime industry that if you've seen one port, you've seen one port. And I think that's very um, true here in Jacksonville. Of course, you know, all of our terminals are different and they operate differently. But we have ships that, you know, may call one terminal one week and another terminal another week. So it really just depends on what their needs are. And it may even depend on what their needs are for that specific call. Um, but we do have, um, you know, roughly 1,500 ships that call our port each year. And we move about 10 million tons of cargo annually. So um, each of those terminals do stay um, very busy. You know, we are one of the most, the nation's most diversified ports. That's something that we're very proud of. So we move a lot of different cargo types. You know, containers and autos are the two biggest that we move, but we also move military equipment. A lot of people may not realize that um, we are one of the nation's 17 strategic seaports. We are the only port in Florida that moves uh, military cargo for things like national defense and foreign humanitarian aid. Oh, wow. So that's that's pretty cool. Now, I yeah, I mean, I, yeah, with the Mayport base here for, for folks who are unaware, Mayport Naval Base. And then we also have Kings Bay that's up in South Georgia. So very important military strategic point um, here in North Florida. And one of the things that I'm also a big fan of is the little boats. I feel like the little boats don't get enough love. And you guys had, you know, a post the other day that talked about one of the historical 
tugboats that that you explain it, break us down what, what we're looking at on, on the screen. Well, I'm so glad that you talked about the tugs because, you know, the big ships, um, they get all the attention. But but yeah, sometimes we do get to move some cool cargo through the port. And this was um, a piece of car- a tugboat that actually is from World War II. It was um, involved in the, the Normandy um, mission over there. But uh, it was made in Florida and it went overseas. And so it actually this is a homecoming that we were able to facilitate. And it was kind of cool. What you just saw there was a modern tug kind of tugging this older out of commission tug. Um, to where it was going, but it's ultimately going to um, to Deland, Florida, where it will be a museum um, for for um, maritime um, tugs and and people who have served on those as well. So it'll be a really nice um, museum. But it was really great to see it come in. Um, one thing that was cool about this move in particular was it was a small nonprofit who was moving it through, and they really leaned on the expertise of our sales team. So we have a, um, a cargo, we have cargo experts who specialize. I mentioned that we're one of the nation's most diversified ports, and we also have cargo experts who specialize in the movement of, of various kinds of cargo. So whatever you have coming through, whether it's a container or whether it's something like um, a historic World War II tug, we have somebody who can help manage it. I love that. I love the the little boats need love too. And and, and one of the the other stories of, of Jacksport, I feel like this this story has been you know sort of a, a a constant for me is harbor deepening. You know, you heard years and years about how hey, we have to get the approval for har- harbor deepening, and then when it actually started and getting all the funding and 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 now that that's actually been completed. Can you ex- break down the significance of uh, why a harbor needs to be deepened to begin with? And then what happens now that the harbor has actually been deepened? Well, yeah, so harbor deepening, um, it's really a monumental um, moment for us to, to see this project come to fruition has really been, um, it's been amazing, to be honest. You know, the studies for the project began back in 2004, which I think is very interesting because that was about the same time that Amazon Prime launched. And when you look at how consumer spending habits have changed, we talk about, you know, cargo shifting from the West Coast. Well, cargo needs to now be at your doorstep two days after you order it, right? Which means distribution centers are moving closer to population centers. We have 1,000 people moving to Florida every single day. And so Jacksonville is located, you know, we're at the northern gateway of the state. A deeper harbor allows us to accommodate not only bigger ships, but also ships of all sizes. You know, we have uh, Sealead, for example. Um, they recently added us to their first ever East Coast container service, the Asia um, East Coast service, AC service. And, you know, their ships require a deeper draft. And so it's not just about the mega ships, but it's allowing Jacksonville to accommodate ships of all sizes so that we can bring more cargo and more jobs to Jacksonville. You know, the Harbor Deepening Project, it's not something that's going to provide just a short-term gain for this community. This is 40, 50 years down the road. This is really long-term benefits, supply chain security, and jobs for Jacksonville. And so what happens, I guess, after the the harbor is deep? And, you know, we're kind of already in it right now, but does that necessarily need to to be done regularly? Is maintenance need to be done regularly in order to make sure that it's, it's deep enough? How does that process work? So regardless of the channel depth, the Army Corps of Engineers maintains whatever's established for that particular channel. So there would be the same amount of maintenance when we were at 40 feet. We were at 40 feet. We deepened to 47. So there is uh, just that maintenance to keep it at whatever the established depth is. So there's Mm -hmm. no appreciable difference between, you know, maintaining the 47 feet or maintaining the 40 feet. 
So there's not, not a chance. My, I, I was thinking, well, maybe with all the ships blowing in and out that that's going to, you know, maybe dust up some, you know, sand at the bottom or something. And then maybe what if it gets to the point where it's not deep enough? That's what, that was my main concern is that, you know, this is probably something that they have to constantly maintain and monitor in order to make sure that, you know, that a, a ship, a giant cargo ship doesn't get stuck on, you know, coasting across the bridge <laughs> or something like that. Yes, All the right, federal government does a job of helping maintain that um, that harbor depth for every federal channel. Absolutely. So, so let's talk a little bit about um, the community impact of of when a city gets a port. So, it's been around since the '60s. You know, what kind of I guess community efforts um, does Jack's Port really you know sort of prioritize, and how has that evolved over the years? So, you know, the, the biggest change for a community really is, of course, the economic um, impact that we see, and in terms of jobs. You know, we're seeing a tremendous growth of industrial real estate. Um, you know, I, every time I drive between our office, which is located near downtown and and our Blood Island, which is our um, largest marine terminal, one of our largest marine terminals, um, we see new warehousing popping up all the time. And so it's really incredible to, to kind of see that logistics network continue to grow and thrive. You know, I love talking about port growth with, with the service providers and the warehousing and some of the people who are involved in that network, because sometimes they are even able to capture how important the port is, you know, better than I can most times because it really impacts their bottom line and their business. Um, so it's really interesting to talk to those folks and to hear their stories about how port growth um, impacts them. Uh, but we do have a lot of, um, of programs that we're working on in the um, environmental space as well. We recently launched our Connected uh, St. John's River Educational Program. It's a partnership with Jacksonville University and it brings um, free river education and resources to area schools. Um, I encourage anybody listening to check it out. It's at ju.edu slash connected. There's all kinds of um, free resources. And so if you're not local, you can use um, the resources that are online. If you are local, you can actually request to have a river expert come to your school or your community group. They do it. It's free. Um, and it's just a, a great service that, that we're doing to really help spread the message about the importance of protecting the river because like as you know, as somebody who lives in Jacksonville, the river is critically important to our economy, but it's also of course important to our recreation and our quality of life. Um, so it's something that you know we feel strongly about um, and helping to spread that message and, and connect people with something that you know can help um, help spread our message. I love that. So, so what kind of stuff is, so if I'm a school and I'm, a, or I'm a teacher and I want somebody from this group to, from JU in order to come out and talk about the importance of the river, what kind of things would I learn? Is there, you know, opportunity to go out into the field or is it more, you know, in the classroom education based? Can you kind of expand on that a little? Yeah. So they've done all kinds of things, which I think is really neat. Um, they do hands-on. They have something called an Enviroscape, which is a 3D model. And it actually shows you um, a lot of the challenges that are impacting the river and how personal choices, such as using too much fertilizer, you can actually see in person how using too much fertilizer gets down into you know the water supply and how it impacts ultimately the river. So they have um, a lot of really neat tools that they use that they can do in person. I think they have done some virtual during COVID, but it's mostly in person. Um, I think there are also opportunities to come out um, and do uh, visits to JU as well. But they do offer a number of, you know, of options depending on kind of what the need is. So I definitely encourage um, any area schools to, to check out that website and, and get connected with us. 
Yeah, it sounds super cool, especially if you can get out in the field and, and see things with your own two eyes on on how, you know, different things affects the river. And because it, Jacksonville is so unique in that regard, because for a, a lot of folks who don't know, like the Mississippi River is a major logistics channel for the United States. And, and I, I'm just thinking outside of the box here, but with the, all of the freight coming in through the intercoastal, how important is the, the St. John's River here in Jacksonville? How important is that to the intercoastal? And do they kind of work seamlessly together? I'm not even sure um, if, if you know the answer to that, but I'm just, you know, sort of thinking that how important is the river to the intercoastal and then to Jacksport together? I think our message is that it's all connected. And so where we kind of started with the connected name was that Jacksport and JU are across the river. And so we are physically connected by the river. But as we were talking with the river experts and the team over at JU, we realized, you know, the whole community really is connected. I mean, you said it right there. The river is vitally important to to everything here in Jacksonville. And it's something that makes us really special. You know, um, seeing the river in person, you know, every time I see a ship sail up the river, I've worked here since 2014 and it's still impressive to me and I still enjoy it. Um, But we don't take for granted the fact that we can't have a thriving seaport without a healthy river. You know, the two go hand in hand. And so so the St. John's is vitally important. And that's why it is very important to us uh, to protect it. You know, we also, uh, Jacksonville is a world leader. You may know this because you live here. We are a world leader in the use of liquefied natural gas as a clean marine fuel. Uh, we also operate eco-friendly cranes. So there's a lot of uh, things that are happening here at Jacksport to make port operations cleaner and greener for the betterment of our community. Love that. Great insight. So so what other kind of, you know, so so we have those three different terminals, you know, you're, you're taking advantage of the river, you're taking advantage of the intercoastal system. What about the the, the freight that moves through the, the city of Jacksonville or, or through Jacksport? How, wh- where is that, I guess, the most commodities that are being shipped here? Wh- where does that freight go once it arrives? Tell us a little bit about the, the flow of freight once it actually arrives in Jacksport. So a lot of the um, goods that come in stay right here in, in Northeast Florida in the region. So we estimate that somewhere between 70-80% of the goods stay in the region, uh, but it also goes throughout the Southeast as well. You know, we see a lot of consumer goods, pretty much everything um, that you would see at a big box store, um, you know, comes through our port as well as, you know, we are the number one port for trade with Puerto Rico as well. So we have a lot of port, uh, a lot of trade going back and forth with the island of Puerto Rico as well. And so one of the uh, one of the other bigger stories over the last couple of years has been uh, semiconductor chips, and and because they're so vitally important with the really how all of our society functions. I mean, we wouldn't be able to do this interview right now without having some kind of a, a computer chip in our devices in order to communicate that. And another big proponent or a. a big advantage for using the chips is also uh, auto transport, which is, if I'm not mistaken, the number one cargo that moves through Jacksport. Am I mistaken in that? Or or how is that, you know, I guess the semiconductor chip affected the auto commodities that are coming through Jacksport? Hopefully I said that right. <laughs> yeah, close enough. So yeah, we are, um, we're the nation's number one, or we're Florida's largest container port, and we are one of the nation's top uh, vehicle handling ports. So containers are, are the largest chunk of our business, but autos is, is second. So it is a very important part of our diversification. Um, but we, you know, of course, you never want to see volumes decline, but there are some declines with the this auto part shortages that we're seeing. Um, but we're actually using this as a time to grow. So it's like when volumes are down, 
grow a little bit. And so we reached a partnership with um, a public-private partnership with Southeast Toyota Distributors recently. They are actually going to relocate and expand their facilities from our Talleyrand Terminal um, over to Glen Island. And so they are going to grow there. That agreement protects um, 800 jobs. And Toyota has been a really great partner of ours. And they've done a lot to diversify their supplier base, uh, which helps ensure that we continue to bring um, vehicles in. Jacksonville. And, you know, we are expecting that there is a bit of a pent up demand, you know, because globally Mm -hmm. supply is down a little bit. And so all of the growth that we're doing ensures that we are ready to meet the needs when that um, pent up demand and when the auto industry rebounds, we'll be ready. And I know. Yeah, because I mean, several people I know are just waiting to to buy it. They're, they want to buy a car, but they're just waiting to buy it until the right, until the timing sort of works out in their favor. And and another one of the commodities that I wanted to bring to light, um, which I thought was super fun and super fascinating, is that in one of Jacksport's social media posts, it said last year, Jacksport is one of Florida's top seaports for shipments of water sport boards, moving, moving approximately 50,000 surfboards and body boards, a 52% increase over the previous year. Do you have any other sort of fun, you know, cargo related facts to to share with us? I do. But first, shameless plug for our social media. Um, If you like Port Facts, please feel free to share or join us on social media. We are on Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram at Jacksport or some version of that handle um, on each channel. We also have a YouTube channel. Um, but we love to crunch the numbers. You know, most of the statistics that we get are in weight. So we, we weigh, you know, the stuff that comes in. And so then we kind of play with the numbers and figure out what it equals. But we figured out that, you know, Northeast Florida is home to the Players' Championship. So we wanted to see during the Players' Week, what, how many golf balls move through Jacksonville? Because that is one commodity that we move. Uh, and we figured out that 1.8 million golf balls moved through Jacksport last year. So that's enough to play roughly about, we figured 600,000 rounds of golf, maybe a little bit more if you hang on to your ball. Um, in case my husband is lifting, uh, more than 2,300 tons of flowers moved through last year. So that's a lot of uh, happy sweethearts. I always appreciate flowers. Um, <laughs> last year, we moved 9,000 uh, containers filled with toys. So my kids would love that. Um, if it was up to them, our house would be filled with them. Um, so that's about six and a half times as tall as Mount Everest, the amount of containers wow. filled with toys that last year. Yeah. So we helped, no, um, okay. you know, but we try to help out where we can. That's awesome. I love those factoids because that's another thing I think not a lot of people know is that PGA headquarters is also in North Florida as well as, you know, home to the Players' Championship, which is one of, it should arguably be the fifth uh, major. In my eyes, it's the fifth major anyways. Now you had mentioned your your husband who is actually an employee of the Jaguars, longtime employee of the Jaguars. I believe he's in charge of the video department. And if anybody has ever watched any Jaguar related videos, especially in-game I'm not just saying this because you're on the show, but the hands down, like best video team in the entire NFL. I will go to war for that statement. So tell us a little bit about um, your trip to Canton because Jaguars are getting their first Hall of Fame player uh, nominated, mm-hmm. inducted into the Hall of Fame this week. And you and your husband are actually headed up there tomorrow. Tell us a little bit about your trip and, and anything that you're looking forward to to doing and attending. Yes, Big Bo. It's finally his time, right? We can't believe it. It's been a really long time coming. You know, my husband actually, as you mentioned, he um, is in the works with the production team, and he um, he's been in the room every time when when they have the moment where they either call Tony or they knock on the door to say, you know, if you get the knock, you made it. If you get the call, you didn't make it. And so, you know, the production team is in there because they want to interview him and all of that. And he's 
always been there when when Tony got the call saying you didn't make it. And so he's really excited. We're really excited. My husband's actually already up there because they have their preseason game tonight. Um, I'll be flying up tomorrow, but we're really excited. You know, it's especially in the last few years, there's been so few moments to celebrate as a Jaguars fan, especially we think about last year. Um, so it's just a really exciting time to just come together, you know, um, with all the fellow Jags fans and just really have a moment of excitement. Um, you know, I, Tony is, my husband just tells me that he's, you know, such a great guy and, and he's known him for a very long time because he's been with the Jaguars for 10 years. And, you know, he just tells me if anybody deserves it, it it's Tony. So we're really excited to celebrate and just be a part of, of Jaguars history, you know, and just, it's really, it's, it's, it really feels surreal. Um, but I do want to mention that um, one thing that my husband has been working on, his team has been working on for the last year, is a documentary um, on Tony's, you know, um, the journey to the Hall of Fame. And even if you're not a Jaguars fan, I highly recommend if you're interested in football um, and, and hearing, you know, the highs and lows of kind of a journey like that, I de- definitely recommend checking it out. It'll be out on Jaguars.com um, in the fall, I think in October it'll come out. I love that. And I love echoing that statement because you're right. It has been, the cheering moments have been few and far between the last few years in a variety of different ways. Uh, but it feels good to finally have, you know, a little bit of hope going into the the season that's coming up. And then also to be able to to celebrate, you know, sort of a, a lifelong fandom of the, you know, just the Jaguars being in Jacksonville and finally getting the accolades that I think a lot of this fan base and a lot of these players who have poured, you know, their blood, sweat and tears into this organization. So I, I, I echo that statement. Um, thank you so much for, for sharing that story. Where can can folks follow more of your work? Where can they follow Jack's Poor? You know, all of that good stuff. Because you you said it, you have great social media. So where can folks follow it? Yes, we are on Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, um, and YouTube. And, you know, we really try to share the stories that as much as we can of the Port community. So please check us out. Um, Jacksport.com is the website. It talks about all of the different uh, commodities that move through. So if you're ever just kind of curious about um, what's going on at Jacksport, check out Jacksport.com or our social media channels. Awesome. Thank you so much, Chelsea. Have fun up in Canton. And uh, we will look forward to that documentary coming out in October. Appreciate your time. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. So what a great, fun conversation. I mean, especially hearing from the the fact of, of Chelsea, Chelsea's husband and, and working for the Jaguars and the significance of not just, you know, Jack's support to the community, but also the Jaguars as well. And so right before I jump into that topic, let's go ahead and talk about Moon Air Group because it's another North Florida business that is making some great impacts here on the First Coast and really across the in, in entire nation as far as your recruiting efforts are concerned. So want to boost your bottom line? Start with hiring the right talent. The Moon Air Group is a leading recruiting firm that specializes in identifying the top logistics and technology talent. Take the first step towards growing your business by visiting moonairgroup.com. And now for our final topic and one that I spent um, literally all week prepping for watching historical videos on this process because I want to talk about the logistics of getting a football team. And for me, I was I was nine years old when we got the Jaguars. And so I know, you know, I have a pretty good memory of what happened after the city was awarded the team. But the 
how it happened to get the football team to begin with was something that I wanted to talk about today because it was one that I think, you know, a lot of different decisions um, went into this. A lot of different chess pieces were involved in this process. And it's really a sort of a fascinating deep dive into what it takes to get an NFL team to a city. Because especially for, you know, a a small market like Jacksonville, you have a, a group of people that have spent decades, decades trying to get a team to town. A lot of people think it was a fly-by-night decision by the NFL in order to award award an NFL team to the city of Jacksonville, but it was not. It was years and years of relationship building of between a particular group within the Jacksonville community. And it took a lot of, you know, inferiority complexes, feeling like the NFL is absolutely going to say no to us. Also dealing with outsiders telling you, trying to reaffirm those same fears that you have about yourself, but then also, you know, having that confidence to say, no, we actually can do this because we have a history of doing it. And so let's talk about what that process looks like, because you can't just call up the NFL and say, hey, I want a team because otherwise every city in the country would be doing that and likely probably has tried at some point. So as a city, you almost have to, and this is based on the the, the video that I was watching. It's called Destiny. Um, it's about the Jacksonville Jaguars and how the city landed the team. It's over on YouTube. I have it linked in the show notes. It's a fabulous, it's about an hour-long documentary about that process. And so a lot of these video clips that you're going to see today come from that. And it, it, if we set sort of the ground level, the ground level was really about Mayor uh, Jake Godbold. He was the facilitator. He had this grand vision of bringing a team to Jacksonville. And so you kind of have to have this come to Jesus moment where you say, okay, well, where do I want to go? Where do I want to take this city? But also where have we been? So back in the late 70s and the early 80s, Jax was really looking for an identity. There were no pro sports team, but we did host the Gator Bowl. We have hosted the Gator Bowl, which is the annual matchup between the Florida Gators and the Georgia Bulldogs. So we've hosted that game every year since 1933, almost every year since 1933. There were a couple of years in there as, you know, the stadium is getting, you know, uh, redeveloped or, you know, a new stadium is being constructed. Those were the few years that we did not host the Florida Georgia game. But we also had a USFL stint in 1984, where the briefly the USFL was uh, a thing in the United States. Not anymore, but we did have a USFL team. So that was really laying the ground level in order to be able to say, hey, we have a football culture here in town. We're ready for that next step of getting an NFL team here. So then the city of Jacksonville, what they started doing is they started flirting with other teams. One of those teams, Baltimore, now the Indianapolis Colts. They were once the Baltimore Colts. In 1979, 50,000 Jacks residents showed up to the Gator Bowl to greet Bob Ursay, who was considering leaving Baltimore. So Jaguars were old, or that Jacksonville was old, uh, was actively flirting with other teams to try to get them to bring their team to our city. Bob Ursay actually famously landed a helicopter in the middle of the once Gator Bowl where all of those 50,000 fans were at, which is really sort of a interesting to see fans holding up signs that saying Jacks wants the Colts, which is now, you know, present day, a division rival of the Jaguars, but they once tried to steal away the Baltimore Colts. The Colts would, of course, you know, pack up in the middle of the night and controversially leave to go over to Indianapolis. Ultimately, that is where they have been ever since. There is another team that we tried to woo away, and a lot of the Titans fans don't know this, but Jax also tried to woo away the Houston Oilers. The Houston Oilers would eventually move to Nashville and become the Tennessee Titans, and eventually 
become the arch rival of the Jaguars. There are a lot of uh, Freightways production staff that are hating the show today uh, because they are all located in Tennessee. And so they are Jaguar or they are not Jaguars fans. They are Jaguars haters, but not as much, I think, as Jaguars hate Titans fans. I think it's kind of one sided with how many Jaguars fans actively hate the Titans fans. And we're not going to go into those reasons today because I, I would need like two hours in order to, to discuss that topic. <laughs> as the, the production team is actually buzzing in my ear saying a go Titans. But I think it's also kind of ironic that the Jacksonville spent so long trying to get or spent years flirting with other cities to get them to bring their team here. And then now present day, the past, I would say probably 10 to 15 years, uh, other cities have actively tried to pull the Jaguars away, looking at you, LA and London. So no, Jaguars aren't going anywhere Let's fingers crossed. But ultimately, you know, in this particular situation, Jake Godbold and his team were doing was about building relationships because all of that that I just told you happened in the late 70s and 80s. And so in 1991, the NFL decided to add two teams to the current 28 team list, bringing the total to 30 teams. So five cities were invited to participate in the expansion of the NFL. So it was Baltimore, Carolina, Jacksonville, Memphis, and St. Louis. And so what happens next is that the city of Jacksonville forms an official group. So they have to form this official group called Touchdown Jacks in order to be the liaison to bring that team and set up at all of the negotiations that has to happen from, you know, the, the ultimate decision of, hey, you know, we're going to give you a shot from the NFL in order to making that, you know, dream come to fruition. So the requirements from the NFL in order to get a team is that, the NFL wants to deal with one person. They want one representative. They don't want to deal with a group. So even Touchdown Jacks was formed. They don't want to deal with an entire group. You have one owner that comes to the owner's meetings and that's who they want to deal with. That is the ultimate sort of point of contact. So you have to have one point of contact. And then they would also be an owner that the league accepted. So you can't just nominate anyone. You have to nominate somebody that's going to be the owner of the team uh, be the liaison, but then also be an owner that the other owners would accept into their club, into their exclusive club. Then the other agree or the other requirement that you had to do was a first class or new facilities agreement in place. So you either had to have a brand new stadium or you had to have an agreement with the city and the taxpayers in order to fund a brand new city. Then you also had to pre-sell club seats so that the community would show support. And so if you're looking on the screen right now, there's a sign that says, get your NFL club seats on July 1st. Your grandchildren will thank you. And so now that the requirements are already listed, that's when the real work begins. And so what happened is that the you had to negotiate between the city council and the city itself uh, in order to replace the Gator Bowl that was, you know, very, you know, sort of uh, not underfunded, but it needed, it wasn't a first-class facility that the NFL wanted. Um, so if you ever watched any of these sort of lease renewals or, you know, stadiums and other sports trying to get a new stadium, you know that those discussions can get a little ugly. And uh, the stadium pricing started out out at 50 million, but the price kept rising because of all of the other teams that were in the mix. All the other four teams you're essentially competing with. And so if they're going to make a $100 million stadium, then you have to make a $120 million stadium. So the prices started to get crazy. And you can probably imagine how annoyed, you know, the non-football fans became, especially the ones on city council, um, which is an interesting note because Touchdown Jacks knew about this annoyance, but instead they switched their pitch to saying, okay, let's look at it as 
you were already going to spend 50 million on stadium renovations on the current stadium, but the NFL is going to give you an NFL team and you get a brand new stadium for 120 million, which I know it's a lot of money, but if you think about it from that lens, that's the way the touchdown jacks pitched it. So I thought that that was interesting. The next thing that they had to do, so once they came to that agreement with the city council and the stadium financing, the next would be to pre-sell those 10,000 club seats in 10 days. Jacksonville had to do that. So the team went to the local news stations. They held a a ticket drive. They went to large corporations in order to get them to commit to, you know, 500 tickets, 250 tickets. Sort of an interesting note here is that with a lot of these companies, they didn't think that Jacksonville had a chance either to get the team. And so they just said, yeah, we'll, we'll get, you know, put us down for 500, not thinking that the team would actually come to, to Jacksonville. So there was a lot of, uh, Wayne Weaver says a lot of tight callers after the, uh, after the approval was finally given. So I thought that that was also an interesting note, um, about the ticket sale process, but they ended up hitting that goal and then, uh, they actually extended or not extended the goal, but exceeded the goal of over 10,000. So between the local community support, the local business support, they were able to get that 10,000 ticket threshold uh, within 10 days, which is crazy to think about. Now, after all of that, they have to then submit all of that as an application in order to submit it to the NFL. They had one month to do this. Let, let's play a video from, from Tom Wade, who was in charge of that. Tom Wade was tasked with putting together a detailed application We sincerely appreciate the league's serious consideration of Jacksonville for an NFL franchise. In a short amount of time. It was one month. There were nights that that I slept on the floor and woke up and worked some more. It was around the clock. You know, you just don't call up the NFL and say, hey, you know, we want a franchise. Uh, that may be the way it starts. It's, a, it's about building the relationships, about them taking you seriously, about them vetting the city. One of the major points was that the NFL was really formed in the days when the Rust Belt was, uh, was healthier. And so uh, the Southeast was 20% of the population and 10% of the team. So uh, one of the reasons, I think, for having a team here is you're putting Uh, franchises in places where the people will be, not where they have been. My recollection is that we sent one of the interns in the office uh, with the application to the airport on the plane to to hand deliver it to the NFL. But it was finished the day it was due. Which is sort of crazy to think about. Now, there was also a couple of other components in that pitch, which was like a promo video for the city of Jacksonville itself, sort of marketing itself. And the voiceover for that video was done by James Earl Jones. I wish I could play it for you, but go watch that original sort of Destiny video and you can hear James Earl Jones. Yes, the the voice of Darth Vader, the voice of Mufasa and Lion King. He's the narrator of that promo video. And he did this before he was Mufasa in, in Lion King. So I thought that that was also an interesting note. So this is an entire package that's put together, it's submitted to the NFL, and then it comes down to voting. And so when the owners are getting together and they're voting, a lot of people think that Jacksonville and Charlotte were announced in the same year. And they were announced in the same year, but not at the same time. Because after these ownership meetings, it was Charlotte that was only approved and they, uh, the rest of the teams were given an additional month. A lot of people think that this was a situation where they were the NFL was trying to give St. Louis an additional opportunity to sort of come to bat with a really good proposal. They never ended up doing that. And of course, 
Jacksonville was later awarded the franchise in uh, a later month decision day. And I think we have enough time to play the announcement video, but I think it's really important. So let's play it. This is a special edition of Eyewitness News. Good afternoon. I'm Deborah Giannolis with Rob Sweeting. Jacksonville, are you sitting down? We have just learned that Touchdown Jacksonville says that it has been confirmed that Jacksonville has become the 30th NFL brand. Holy sh! We, so we need somebody to pinch us. Uh, it's my pleasure to announce that the uh, membership has selected Jacksonville as the 30th NFL club. I just want to say, uh, Commissioner, that uh, the decision that the NFL made here today to Jacksonville is certainly going to make you proud. And they definitely have made us all proud because after 27 years of being awarded the team, the Jaguars are finally getting their first player inducted into the Hall of Fame this weekend. Mr. Tony Baselli left tackle for the Jaguars. Very first ever draft round, draft pick ever in the team's history. So it's kind of all coming to fruition for the city of Jacksonville and the Jaguars and being able to put this accomplishment, you know, on on the pedestal that it deserves because it really is the story of getting the Jaguars is the story of how the fan base and the players are today. It took determination. It took believing in the little guy. And it's really been an honor to sort of watch this all unfold. So I hope, you know, as we have the closing seconds, I hope you guys all tune into the Hall of Fame game tonight and the ceremonies on Saturday. One last time, go Jags.